sorry. I have to do some blood sugar maintenance. If I start slurring my speech and I don't make sense, you know why. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this time that we have to learn about you. Thank you for our opportunity to be together in a community with people who know you and who love you. I ask that you would uh, soften our hearts and focus our minds on the truths that you would have us learn. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, last time I had the chance to speak, uh, I got to introduce the value of the disciplines. And speaking on the disciplines is kind of like inviting your friends over to watch like a black and white classic movie. Uh, Afterwards, everybody's like, yeah, that was really good. I'm glad we did that. But you don't have the upfront excitement, unfortunately. Community, on the other hand, is like inviting all your friends over to watch, I don't know, like Star Wars or Toy Story. People are genuinely excited about it. So community is, is not just one of our values. This is one of the things we really seem to like. So why is that? Why is community a value for, for one thing? And, and why is it one that we like so much? Well, as I was getting ready to speak, uh, I revisited a book called uh, Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he starts his book with the first verse from Psalm 133. I think... Psalm 133 is going to be a good way for us to point ourselves in the right direction. Uh, So I'm going to go through it. Uh, Here's how it goes. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. So we have this series of images in the psalm that get progressively more powerful. It starts uh, with precious oil poured on the head. And this is referring to anointing oil, uh, which is cool, it's fragrant, uh, it smells good, not just to the person who has it on them, but to everybody around them. At the time when this psalm was written, they would use anointing oil uh, at festivals and at joyous occasions. So it had this celebratory feel to it. Uh, We don't have anointing oil or really anything like it in our culture. The closest thing that I could think of in my experience was a time when Tamaki and I spent Christmas morning with the Brunsons. And the Brunson family, uh, their tradition was to make a big... Uh, a big breakfast Christmas morning. So, so they made this huge breakfast with a bunch of pancakes and other things. And the maple syrup running down those pancakes <laughs> as we were celebrating the coming of Jesus. Maybe, maybe that's the kind of thing uh, David is talking about in the psalm with oil poured on the head. So then the psalm progresses uh, to talk about a particular occasion of anointing. Uh, And that's the consecration of Aaron as high priest. So it's in this event that God establishes a link with his people. And so through Aaron's mediation as priests, as his mediation between God and God's people, God 
gives fellowship with himself to his people. And this is hugely important because what this says is that the unity of God's people comes only from God giving people fellowship with him. It's a gift to them. It's a blessing. And even though the description here is just a blessing on one man, it's through this one point man that God blesses all of his people. And that's what the next image paints a picture of. Um, Mount Hermon is a tall, broad mountain. It's on the, it's on the north side of Israel. It covers the same uh, width as the Catalinas north of Tucson, but it's 2,000 feet taller and it faces the Mediterranean Sea. And you can imagine that the moist air uh, blowing in over land from the Mediterranean Sea kind of piles up on the foothills of Mount Hermon and then condenses and falls down like dew. And so the picture here is of God's blessings falling down on all of his people through his offering fellowship with them in Aaron's priesthood. The final verse says that the unity of God's people is his blessing on them, and that blessing is eternal life, which doesn't really seem to follow. And it doesn't it doesn't follow the, the pattern here. Um, I thought what we were talking about is how nice it feels to have uh, like-minded people, you know, all the warm and fuzzy feelings you get from living with good people. I thought that's what the psalm was about. But it ups the ante on you. And it says that life together, that unity with God's people, is the same kind of blessing as eternal life. And in fact, that it's a part of salvation. So we have unity with all of God's people in the same way that we have eternal life. That is, in Jesus. So we know that our bodies are falling apart and that eventually they're going to pass away. But we have hope for eternal life in Jesus. And we also know that we're pretty far from living in unity with all of God's people. Certainly not perfect unity. But in the same way that we hope for eternal life, unity with God's people is something that we hope for. So there are two main points that I want to take away from Psalm 133. The first is that community is only possible when God makes it possible by offering his fellowship with his people. And the second is that we can think of life together in unity, a.k.a. community, as being a part of salvation, as being something that's hoped for. So one of the reasons that we don't live together in unity with all of God's people in this world right now, um, I think is because God intends uh, that right now anyway, we be scattered. And that, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, we live in the thick of foes, just like Jesus did. If Jesus hadn't decided to come down and live among his enemies, who could hope to have been saved? So it's the same story for us. I think the default expectation for a follower of Jesus is a life of isolation among enemies. A lot of Paul's letters in Scripture were written while he was in prison. And John's letter was written while he was in exile. And in their writing, you can sense this pining for the physical presence of other believers. 
So if community is something that we hope for, and if we're supposed to be scattered, going out and making disciples as Jesus told us to, how is it that we have this church, this gathering of fellow followers of Jesus? Well, I think that one reason is, and actually I don't think the reasons are as important as the response, but one reason is um, that if you think of Jesus' ministry, he came and he physically healed sick people. And those people who were healed eventually died. And what he was doing was not in vain. He was healing out of compassion. And what he was doing was proclaiming that he had the power and the desire to heal our broken bodies. And so I think a similar thing is going on uh, with our gathering. What Jesus is doing is proclaiming that he has the power and the desire to heal our broken communities. So how are we to respond to the fact that God has given us this opportunity to live together with others who know and love Jesus? Well, overwhelmingly, I think the response is gratitude. We can be very grateful for this chance of living with people who know God. And if we're going to give that gratitude legs, and I think we should, I think it means gratefully receiving what God has provided us in community. And it also means participating, gratefully, in the community that God has provided. So what does it mean to accept with gratitude the community that God provides? Well, I think it means acknowledging that the community is not an ideal, it's a reality. So I think a lot of times what we do when we approach a community is we have an idea of what it should be rather than an idea of what it is. Not that this kind of you know it, vision casting, so to speak, is in itself wrong, but I think the visions that we develop can become subtle or not so subtle demands and we know that they're a demand. The first sign that you get is when that vision starts to clash with the reality that this is a community of grace. Because we know that you don't have to have grace on beautiful things. You have grace on ugly things. And so this community is every bit as ugly and grisly as God intends it to be. It's kind of like uh, in sports, you know, the mercy rule. It sounds nice, but it's not really. Um, if, if you say that during the season, your team benefited a great deal from the mercy rule, that doesn't reflect very well on your team. <laughs> and so our church is that team. If you replace athleticism with like relational righteousness. So if you're stepping into a church that pre preaches grace, it's kind of like walking through police caution tape. You know that on the other side, you're going to find something that's not nice. And so stepping into that kind of scene with an ideal for what it should be like and then pursuing that ideal 
instead of the reality of the community, has the danger of leading to disillusionment with the community, maybe with Christians in general, uh, with God, and if you're fortunate, with yourself. Because when that ideal uh, crumbles, you become an accuser of the community and of yourself and of God. Instead, we have the opportunity to acknowledge that the community is God's creation, as it is, and you can become a participant and a grateful uh, recipient of what it is he's provided. Because we can't manufacture Christian fellowship, and that's because by nature... Christian community is is mediated by Christ. So what does it mean to have Jesus mediate a relationship? Well, it means less direct, at least less uh, direct in a human sense, interaction with people. Um, In a direct relationship, I make decisions based on the effect that I have on you and the effect that you have on me. So in a direct relationship, When I serve you, the intent is that uh, you'll be served and that you'll appreciate me and that I will feel strong and valuable. Uh, When I share vulnerably with you, it's so that I can build intimacy uh, and fill some sense of loneliness. When I give advice or consolation, I got to fix your issues. And... It may actually not sound like these kinds of relationships are a bad thing. I mean, in fact, it sounds like a normal relationship, really. Um, but, but there are a few, a few pitfalls. Actually, there are a lot of pitfalls. One of those is that when you hurt or disappoint me, the relationship fractures. And when we approach relationship this way, like it's already fractured. It's fractured beyond our abilities to repair. And that's because... Um, the relationships are either transactional or they're powerless. I can't help or persuade you enough to fix your deeper problems. And I certainly can't help and persuade you enough to justify my own brokenness. And I can't extract enough out of a relationship directly to fill my deepest longings. But there's hope, right? Because in the fractures that we find in our relationships that creates just enough room uh, for Jesus to squeeze into the gaps and fill them up like glue right, and bond us together. Paul talked about this bond in Ephesians 4.3. He said, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And he talked more about this bond of peace to the Colossians in Colossians 3.15. When he said, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. So the bond of peace is the peace that each of us has, not in each other, but in Jesus. So in a relationship that's mediated by Jesus, that's indirect, I decide what to do based on the effect Jesus is going to have on you the effect that I'm going to have on Jesus, that he's going to have on me. And so, you know, when you think about it this way, actually, the most direct way you can affect somebody in a relationship that's mediated by Jesus is through prayer. 
And I think uh, for those of us who follow Christ, we sense that this is true because, as, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, we've hit the end of our tether enough times. We've been jerked backwards, and we know exactly the limits of our own strength and power. Um, I, re- I found the end of my tether a few days ago when I was talking with my wife, and she was feeling down, a little sad uh, about a certain set of relationships, and I happened to be preparing a sermon on community and relationships. So immediately I knew what to say because I had a correction in my back pocket. Clearly she was thinking about these relationships in the wrong way. And that's where I hit the tether. Right? I got snapped backwards right there because instead of fixing my wife, uh, the response was just deeper discouragement. That's because our corrections, my correction in that moment, was not powerful enough to heal my wife's deeper sadness. Instead, we believe that Jesus has the power and desire to heal the people that we interact with in our community. And so when we listen to each other, we're not listening to each other for the opportunity to speak. We're listening to each other for the opportunity to pray. And that's because we know that the Holy Spirit is actively at work in our community, healing one another. It's also important to remember that when we serve each other, we're not serving each other directly, we're serving Jesus. And one of the reasons that's important is because not everybody is very easy to serve. Um, Some people at times are unpleasant to be around. they're ungrateful, maybe they just don't have anything to offer in return. So when I say some people are difficult to serve, I mean all of us are difficult to serve, including myself. But Jesus addressed this when he said in Matthew 25, starting at verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, I tell you the truth, just as you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. So we're called to love one another because Jesus loves us and because we all bear God's image. I think that's what sets a community apart as being centered on God. Like when Jesus said in John 13:35, everyone will know by this that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, sometimes I hear this verse and I feel uh, caught out. Right? I feel a little bit of shame because I'm pretty sure that nobody identifies me correctly as a follower of Jesus by my love. 
And so I get this impulse to like run out and find somebody to give a shoulder hug to just to you know demonstrate that I'm loving. Uh, and that's probably not the healthiest shame to feel. But I do think you know maybe there is a little bit of healthy shame in there because Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us. So as much as we can in our own power, I think we're called to live uh, intentionally and to love one another intentionally. But it's interesting the wording that Paul uses here because he starts out by saying, the imitators of God is dearly loved children. And if you've seen children imitating, say, their parents, you know that the imitation is not very good. Uh, I was I was out in my backyard digging a trench a couple weeks ago, and Eisen was out there with me. Eisen's my two-year-old son. And so I'm digging the trench with a shovel and a pickaxe, and Eisen grabs a stick, and he walks over to one to one section on the, on the trench, and he just sticks the stick in the ground. He pulls it, he pushes it in and out like 500 times. And over and over again, he's saying, Papa digging, Eisen digging. So as much as I want my love to just, you know, absolutely melt hearts and cure loneliness, I can't. But that's the reason that people who see my love know I'm following Jesus. They see God using me and they think, wow, like that guy has a lot of help. (laughs) Finally, When Jesus mediates our relationships, he mediates the pain that every relationship comes packaged with. So when we suffer at the hands of our community, he's there in the suffering with us. It's kind of like being in a boxing match. You know, there's a referee who stands off to the side, who mediates the match, and that's what Jesus is doing. Except instead of being off to the side, Jesus is right in the middle in between the two fighters. And he's taking the brunt of every blow. In fact, he already did on the cross. In the abuse, uh, the insults, the mockery, the abandonment, and the total misunderstanding that Jesus suffered there. And so when our relationships are mediated by Jesus, even in the insults we experience in community, we're able to draw closer to Jesus because we can share his suffering. And it's also important because it means the relationship that we have doesn't depend on our behavior, it depends on forgiveness. So I'm going to return to the original questions, which were... um, Why is community a value, and why is it one that we like so much? Well, why is community a value, and why is it one that we like so much? And it's because when the people in our community listen to us, we experience Jesus listening to us. And when the people in our community serve us, we experience Jesus serving us. When the people in our community forgive us, what we experience is Jesus forgiving us. 
And so it's in community that we have our most tangible experience of Christ. That's why Psalm 133 starts out with how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. We have a little bit of time for comments, questions, disagreements. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I think it's important too that when Jesus said, go and make disciples, he also said, I am with you. And so as hard as it is to live among imperfect people, people who are sometimes our enemies, like we're not alone in it. Yeah, thanks. Indeed, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, be toddler-like imitators. Yeah, Eric. I've never benefited from the mercy rule. I benefit all the time. Oh yeah, if if you're not familiar with the mercy rule, you see it a lot in like little league style games where one team is just so much better than the other team that they rack up the score so high and it's so discouraging for the other team that they stop the game from continuing. That's Yeah, 11 to 1 in ping pong is when the mercy rule kicks in. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think when I have stepped into a community full of people who know Jesus, those are the times when I'm most impacted by him because I see their brokenness and and their their weakness, but I also see them loving each other. And so as much as I see their brokenness, as they love me, I experience my brokenness. 
because the love that I experience in a community that's centered on Christ, where the Holy Spirit is, is active, isn't conditional on me. And the responses are different, right? I think, given how I've behaved, nobody in this community should treat me the loving way that they are. Yeah. Yeah, right. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, Emily. I think so. I'm one of those non-natural public speakers who writes out everything. And so, yeah, I've got... I've got... An, embar- an embarrassing amount of notes, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, I can, I can share them with whoever. Mm-hmm. One time for one more uh, comment. Yeah, Sue. 